Well, good afternoon and welcome to the 1st of April 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. You know, I'm, I'm always glad that you can join us uh, for any of our shows. And well, it is April 1st. I know it's April Fool's Day, but we're not going to be doing any kidding here. So. <laughs> All right. Um, there, there, there's no place like uh, like this one, like Greenwich, Connecticut, and um, and this particular podcast show, uh, where you get to hear about some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, founded on July 18th, 1640. Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or maybe even just 400 seconds or somewhere in between, well, by golly, and uh, you are you are here. <laughs> You're here to stay or temporarily, it doesn't matter. You are very much a part of our history, and we are very, very glad to have you. Um, uh, I have to tell you that I am very, very grateful to um, to some people and entities and organizations out there that are making this podcast possible. Um, I would like to express my thanks, of course, to Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, and my good friend, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and to listeners like you everywhere. Thank you so much. Coming up on today's show... On today's Talk of the Town segment, you're going to hear a conversation that I just recently had with Mr. Dan Quigley. He is the former chair of the Greenwich Republican Party. He was a member of the Representative Town Meeting, but he recently authored a very, very interesting article uh, regarding Connecticut Statute 8-30G. Of course, this is the one that has made headlines here in Greenwich about affordable housing and about all of the uh, development proposals that are out there and possible demolitions of uh, historic assets, which uh, I personally am not pleased about. But um, I contacted Dan quickly, and I wanted to find out more. You're going to hear a conversation that I had with him at a wonderful place that you know well and I do too, and that's Coffee for Good in the 1856 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich. In the early years of the 20th century, readers of the Greenwich Press were occasionally treated to one of the town's most prolific columnists who commented about Greenwich's history. Who was that? Judge Frederick A. Hubbard. I'm going to share one of his many columns with you today. Speaking of Judge Hubbard, in 1908, I hate to say it, but he was robbed while riding a trolley in New York City in 1908. It was featured in the local press here. Um, we're going to feature this as we continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, well, you'll hear news of public events at the Greenwich Historical Society and all sorts of things and much more as today's show unfolds. Please stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations 
of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. The Connecticut State Statute 8-30G on the subject of quote-unquote affordable housing has become the subject of lively conversation in Greenwich. Hearings and written articles and news pieces published in various news sources. Now, there was one that caught my eye. It was an investigative article by Greenwich resident Dan Quigley, titled The Corporate Interests Behind Desegregate Connecticut, was published on March 19, 2022, in Greenwich Free Press. It caught my eye. Dan Quigley and I met recently at Coffee for Good in the historic 
1856 Solomon Mead House on the campus of the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. I was interested in meeting Mr. Quigley to ask him some questions and learn more. And the following that you are about to hear is our conversation. We send our thanks to Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and Coffee for Good for making today's Talk of the Town segment possible. All right, well, Dan Quigley, thank you for appearing on the show today. We're glad to, to have you. First, um, if you would, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be at Coffee for Good. It's a great place for a good cause. Uh, Grew up in Greenwich, uh, born in Suffern, New York. Uh, Lived in Greenwich uh, since I was five and a half years old. And uh, mid-country for the first 20 plus years. And then downtown for the last 20 years or so. Uh, With my wife and son now, uh, we live uh, in downtown Greenwich. My son is a student at Julian Curtis. I went all through the Greenwich public school system graduated from Syracuse University in 1994 and had a 20-year career in financial services. And uh, now I'm an at-home dad who's uh, getting a lot more involved in local government and issues than uh, I ever thought I would, but I've always had an interest (laughs) in politics and history, and uh, so it makes sense for me. So I'm glad to be here with you. All right. Well, well, very good. Uh, All right. Now, now i got to ask you, what was the spark that ignited your interest uh, in the, the current discussion and debate about you know what is called the Affordable Housing Appeals Procedure, but more commonly known as uh, by its technical name, the 8-30G issue. Well, having grown up kind of in mid-country, downtown had always been a destination for me. Uh, but then having moved there uh, in the early 2000s uh, on West Elm Street, and now with a, a, a child, as I mentioned before, A lot of what we do is we walk around town to do a lot of our activities, go to school, grab a bite to eat, go to Havemeyer Field to play. And uh, I realized that it's a thriving community. For most residents of Greenwich, it's a place to go and and shop. But for the people who live down there, it's our neighborhood. And when 830G began to really gain some momentum the last year and a half, two years, um, I, I had noticed how congested it is, how dense it had become. Uh, comparatively to what it used to be, talking to a lot of people who have lived in town for years. And uh, I I could just see that, you know, more density was probably not the best course for downtown Greenwich. Uh, And I think that that the 830G issue is less, to me, an issue of being anti-affordable housing. I'm not anti-affordable housing. I think the town should be left to do that through the housing authority in Greenwich communities. That's the best way to do it. You get 100% affordable housing with no market rate housing. That's the, the best way and most effective way to accomplish the goals of increasing housing uh, uh, supply for the town. But you know, doing it with developers and having big developments and apartment buildings on corners that will add to traffic and add impervious space, which is bad for the environment, is not really a good way to do it. And I don't think the state should mandate this to the communities of Connecticut. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. All right. Now, um, I have to tell you, I hang around with attorney types, whether I'm here in Greenwich or Hawaii, uh, where I also live. And, you know, we, we, we talk story, that's an expression in Hawaii, um, about a, a number of things. And one of them is legal definitions. <laughs> and one of them is this um, that I'm intrigued by. Explain to me, I know you're not an attorney, but, um, but try to explain to me, what is, with this law in mind, the 830G, what is the legal definition of, quote-unquote, affordable in terms of housing um, in the state of Connecticut today? Sure, and, and I'm not a lawyer, and it is a complex issue, and it does require a, a somewhat uh, 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 pointed answer. Uh, Housing in Connecticut is considered affordable uh, when it costs occupants no more than 30% of their income, including the cost of utilities. So for the purposes of 830G, medium income is defined as the lesser of state medium income or the property's area medium income as determined by the housing and urban development uh, at the federal level. The problem with 830G in Greenwich is that a lot of the people to whom it would be applicable to in most communities will not qualify for it. So if you're talking about police officers, firefighters, teachers, nurses, 
uh, even um, public administrative workers for the town of Greenwich, mm -hmm. they make too much money to qualify for the 830G mandates at the state level. Thereby, they would not be able to qualify to live in 830G apartments in a town like Greenwich. So it doesn't really service the people it's being promoted to service. Okay. All right. Now, I want to I start my next question with a personal story. <laughs> so bear with me here. Um, and, and all right. All right. This is a firsthand example. And, and all. during the pandemic in August uh, 2020 until April of 2021, so roughly about a year ago, I took a rental on Byram Shore Road. Beautiful area of town. It really is. The water was really beautiful. It consisted of a bedroom in a house, old historic house, um, on the water with a full kitchen, bath, and laundry access. There were other amenities, and all the utilities were covered. Uh, didn't have to pay anything extra. It was within walking distance of the bus lines to and from Greenwich and Porchester uh, over in New York. Now, um, I, I hope you, well, of course you are sitting down, but I hope the listeners are sitting down for this. What was the price I paid? $600 a month. <laughs> that's, yep. that's, that's pretty nice, um, you know, by any, uh, uh, any measure. Now, there are many other properties like this. There are people who do rent out rooms um, and they, uh, you know, like this, and they, that offer similar accommodations here and elsewhere, not just here in Greenwich, but in Connecticut as well. Yet these kind of accommodations, according to what I understand, you correct me if I'm wrong, they don't fall under the uh, affordable housing quota, for want of a better word, which to me strikes me as on. So, I mean, would you agree with me that there should be uh, based on what I've just said, a discussion and even maybe a revision of the uh, 830G statute to better and more inclusively reflect the diverse housing options that uh, exist. Talk to me about that. Absolutely. And that's a conundrum that Greenwich has been in for some time because right now, the town of Greenwich is at 5.3% affordable housing. That's better than most of its peer towns in Fairfield County. But it's because Greenwich is a bellwether town and kind of the premier town and the first one across the border from New York, it's always held accountable. If you were to include uh, units like you rented, Jeff, yes. or if you were to also add to that hospital-provided affordable housing for nurses, private school-provided affordable housing for teachers and staff and administrators, Greenwich would be at about 8.5%. Now, that changes the dynamic. It would probably warrant Greenwich getting a moratorium on any further 830G proposals, and it would give us time to put together a plan, which I know uh, the Planning and Zoning Department is putting together right now, a, a, a Greenwich-centric uh, affordable housing plan. This is one of the reasons why we think 830G has failed, because you cannot mandate a 10% affordable housing number mm. for 169 unique and distinct and individual communities throughout the state when different states have different needs, different planning desires, different requirements with regard to density, and you've got towns that do have affordable housing that just don't uh, match up with what the mandate and the current statute has. Okay. All right, all right, that's very good. Now, um, you, you mentioned the private schools um, in, uh, in your comments, and, um, and so, this also comes to mind is that, um, and it's well known here in, uh, in Greenwich, that housing that has been purchased to provide homes for teachers, this has been done by Brunswick and Greenwich Academy in particular. My understanding too is that that housing does not fall under the, the state government's quota for the quote-unquote affordable housing. So talk to me about that. Why, why is that? It doesn't fall under the quota for affordable housing because they deem that as not being open affordable housing for everyone. So it's not equitable to everyone. It's equitable to those people. Uh, I know a couple of teachers at Brunswick, one in particular, who used to live in my building downtown because they had filled up the Brunswick affordable housing spots, but they gave him a stipend, yeah. which allowed him to live in my building at a significantly reduced cost. Oh. That's affordable, right? Yes. Um, it just doesn't count. So, but these, again, you know, teachers, administrators, nurses, these are people, you, you know, affordable housing and 830G is sort of aimed to satisfy. And so by not allowing them or disallowing them, it, it, it creates problems for communities like Greenwich. Okay. All right. Now, um, 
you know, I'm an historian, and this uh, this podcast show is about you know Greenwich history and whatnot. So I want to kind of take our focus over there now. Especially in recent years, Greenwich has witnessed the demolition of historic properties. It's going on for for a very very long time. Um, and one historic district that is presently under a threat is the one um, also listed on the National Register of Historic Places called the Fourth Ward Historic District, which this is very, very interesting. It was originally developed in, in 1836 as moderate uh, you know, housing income, and it was also very multicultural for African Americans, but also um, you know, Irish uh, residents uh, as, as well. Now, the district, again, was placed on the National Register of Historic Places, and we all know it's very controversial, and there is a petition out there uh, to oppose this. There is a proposed seven-story, 192-unit development, which would not only demolish some of these um, historic uh, houses, but it would um, set aside a limited number of units as, quote-unquote, affordable, um, and it is to say the least, very controversial. Share some thoughts with me about that. Yeah, look, I think it's, uh, it's, 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 I don't want to use the word demoralizing, but it's depressing to think that an entire block, a whole community that has existed for a long time in our town and thrived for many years could just be completely leveled uh, to make room for one of these buildings. And again, look, you know, towns have character. And I've heard the argument that character is not an issue that should be part of the affordable housing debate. It takes a bad seat. But towns like Greenwich attract people. Towns like Fairfield, New Canaan, Westport, Darien attract people because of the character of the community, the charm of these older buildings, the front porch houses that they used to have. Uh, That's a charming quality that does attract people to a community like this. So by replacing that with kind of a cookie-cutter monolithic structure with 200-plus units, Takes, it takes away from the character of the community. It also adds a lot of other ancillary problems, of traffic problems, and pervious space problems in that neighborhood. And despite the fact that you, there are going to be 30% affordable A30G units there, uh, I think it, it, it begs the question, too, you know, how conceited are we in Greenwich to assume that people who live in other places uh, you know, where they where they get better bang for their dollar, maybe they can afford a smaller house with a yard, are going to come streaming into Greenwich just to live in an apartment to be in Greenwich. Yeah. I don't think that that's true, and I think a lot of people live where they live because they make the choice to live there because it fits their needs and their wants. It's always a balance. Um, you know, my wife and I have had a condo in Greenwich for years, and we were able to buy the condo next to ours, so we, we oh. merged the two. Um, and we did it because we loved being downtown and we loved the accessibility to things. Mm-hmm. And we, we put that together uh, by chance. It was a choice we made, though, because when we had our son, we realized that the 1,000-square-foot apartment we lived in was not going to hold the three of us together very long. So we were looking for options, and our options were to buy a small house in Greenwich, maybe to move to another town, or to do something downtown that fit within our budget. And this is the choice we made, for better or worse. So, you know, I think the leveling of an entire neighborhood, a quaint neighborhood that was a place where I had friends who lived growing up, where I used to go downtown, and afterward we go to the library and watch, you know, VHS movies on the third floor. Like, that whole disappearing of that neighborhood does not add a positive to the town. I think it, 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 it creates more density which I think is the significant problem with this with this rule. Okay, all right. Now, um, I want to turn our attention to the piece that you wrote that uh, Leslie Yeager published on um, March 19 in her um, Greenwich Free Press, and we are very, very grateful to uh, to Leslie Yeager for uh, for doing that. Um, uh, yeah, so, talk to us about what you have revealed about. Uh, this entity known as uh, Desegregate Connecticut? Well, all the information that I published in that article is public information. It's publicly available. It's not hard to find. Uh, It's very accessible and easy to find. Um, And what I was interested in was, you know, how does Desegregate Connecticut function? How do its employees get paid? How are they funded? Um, Who's the funding arm behind them? And recently they partnered with RPA, the Regional Plan Association, and the chairman of the Regional Plan Association is also the CEO of RxR Realty, which is the owner of, you know, 
30 million cubic square footage of real estate in New York City and one of the biggest real estate companies and, and development companies in Manhattan. So as I began to look into that and I looked at the top donors that RPA has on its website, which is published, these are donations of more than $100,000. Uh, a lot of them are construction companies, mm -hmm. developers, real estate companies with interests in the real estate business. And, you know, it begs the question, you know, are there, is there, is there an alignment of interests here between uh, RPA and, and, and big corporate interest on the real estate and development side and something like Desegregate Connecticut? And it was pretty clear by the, you know, the simple research I did that there is. Uh, it's the alignment of interests is in that Desegregate is fulfilling the political ambition of what they want to do, and RPA is fulfilling the build-out of the infrastructure, which companies that support it and desegregate Connecticut can profit from. So I think it's something worth looking at. I think it's something that got people's attention. I know the article was widely read. It kind of went viral around the state. And again, it was all public information that anyone can look up. And I know RPA has been around for a long time, and it's been at the forefront of developing uh, urban planning in New York City. But look, you know, Connecticut and Fairfield County is not Manhattan. And the reason a lot of these towns have decided to uh, go against the movement toward more density is because they want to preserve for their community what they feel is what makes them attractive. And they don't want more density. A town like Stamford is going for density. Stamford wants to be the bellwether city in Connecticut. It wants to be the hub. If, if they want to go after this and they want to have developers uh, determine how their affordable housing uh, stock is going to be uh, developed, they should be a community that is at the forefront of this. But communities that don't want that shouldn't be forced to by a state mandate. So, you know, there's the old saying, the old expression that is often used, uh, uh, quote unquote, follow the money trail. So <laughs> any comments? What did you find, if anything, about that? I just think uh, in our society today, you know, it's, 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 I'm not a particularly cynical person, but when I saw what I saw and you read what I read, which again is publicly available, and you see this broad alignment of interests and this alignment in, in goals between the massive real estate development community and desegregate Connecticut, which portrays itself as like a Davy and Goliath, the Davy and the Goliath story, uh, it piqued my interest. And what I really think it showed me was that the real David and the David and Goliath story are the small towns throughout Connecticut that are fighting these big corporate interests and trying to do it in a way that retains their local ability to control the density and the, and, and the build out of development in their communities. Okay. All right. Now, my, my next question, um, it, it is kind of multidimensional, so bear with me here. Now, the state government um, has mandated that all housing in all of Connecticut's towns and cities be 10% uh, affordable by its definition. So I ask you this, I mean, is this attainable? Is this some utopian you know, idea, how will the state, um, by the way, how is the, how is the state going to enforce the mandate and by whom, and what's the deadline? So. Multiple th things there. Tough question uh, that requires a, a tough answer. So <laughs> 830G was enacted uh, over 30 years ago uh, in an effort to build out uh, more affordable housing in Connecticut. It applies to all towns with less than 10% of, uh, of affordable housing available. Um, it, it enables the developers to, to basically ignore zoning uh, uh, regulations and in with regard to height, with regard to lot coverage and setbacks and FARs and deed restrict 30% of these units to be affordable. That's the problem, right? So it's not that, again, as I said earlier, it's not a fight against affordable housing. I know that people on the other side like to promote the idea that people who are against the 830G rule are against affordable housing. The sort of NIMBY argument, not in my backyard. That couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, we would rather see uh, towns work with their housing authorities directly 
as Greenwich has with the Greenwich communities to build out housing supply in their communities. This way, if the housing authority does it, and some towns have different challenges, some, it's not easy for some towns to get land to build it. Uh, it's a challenge to figure out where they're gonna do it, so it takes time. But when you have your housing authority build out affordable housing, you are adding only to the affordable housing stock in your community. So that 10% number, you can build toward hitting that, that, that uh, goal much quicker. The problem with 830G is that not only does it remove any sort of local control from zoning with regard to size or scope or mass or density, it basically says we'll add 30%, the developers can add 30% of affordable housing to any of their developments while also adding 70% of market rate units to subsidize the 30% of affordable housing that they're not gonna make money on. So if you're trying to get to 10%, and you see that numerator increasing more rapidly than the denominator, it's very difficult to eventually get to that 10%. And what happens is you are building more development. You're developing more housing just to scratch and claw your way at a 7 to 3 ratio to get to 10%. And that leads to increased density and increased problems that none of these communities that are having this mandated want to have to deal with. So getting to, the, the it, it basically the short answer is, it's almost, almost a mathematical, mathematical uh, possibility for most of these towns to ever get to 10% if they're gonna do it through 830G because the ratio of market rate units more than two times outpaces the ratio of affordable units and you're just gonna be building more market rate units and that goal is gonna be harder to achieve. Okay. All right. Uh, um, you might have already answered this question, but I'm, I'm going to uh, you know, state it anyway. Now, um, there is a tradition of um, decentralized zoning in Connecticut to the individual uh, towns and, um, and cities. This goes back generations. I grew up with that um, here. So, so tell me something. Um, uh, does this change? And if so, how? Well, you know, Connecticut has, uh, you know, Greenwich, Greenwich's uh, uh, affordable housing plans go back to the 1940s. Um, and there's always been an effort in communities like Greenwich and throughout the state to try and build out some affordable housing. Uh, you know, how will this, having a state-regulated affordable housing plan that basically holds accountable every one of the 169 municipalities and small towns throughout an entire state to the exact same standard just doesn't seem sensible to me. Uh, all of these little towns, if we go up further north in Connecticut, central Connecticut, in southern Connecticut, they all have different abilities, different needs, different land challenges that are unique to them. So, and because it's New England, uh, it's even more complex because you know these towns have histories that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. Whereas if you're you know, if you're in a bigger state that has a lot more land available, it may be easier to solve. So you know it it, it it should. I think that the affordable housing rule should be something that leaves much more up to each individual town to be able to make it work as best they can for themselves. And the state should be able to kind of look at each town on a regular basis and decide, okay, these guys have made headway, they're getting toward, they're improving, maybe not hitting a benchmark number, but they're improving, doing what they can. And if towns have a problem, maybe they can work with the state if they need to figure out a way if it's, if it's moving too slow. But just having the state uh, mandated is just not good for anyone. All right. Now, now um, you know, as we start to wind down, there are, to say the least, many issues that politically and culturally divide people uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we lack the time to go into them all. We could be here forever, and uh, we don't want that. Now, uh, yep, today's discussion and debate on affordable housing has, and this is interesting, it has apparently earned bipartisan support. So talk to us about that. Uh, in Greenwich, we have bipartisan support. All of our Greenwich elected officials have come out strongly uh, this year, this legislative session, against 830G, uh, including Steve Metzger's, who's our elected Democrat representative in the 150th district. And I give Steve a lot of credit. You know, he's come out, he's appeared with Republican elected officials at affordable housing symposiums and, and press events. And he's, he's added his very strong and respected voice 
to this battle uh, in favor of you know finding a different way to do it. I know First Selectman Fred Camillo, who has broad bipartisan support throughout our community, has been a vocal critic of 830G, and uh, you know that look. This is not a political issue. Uh, it shouldn't be looked at as a political issue. Um, I, I think yes, it's true that the support for this is mostly coming from one side of the aisle in Hartford, but. In order to stem the tide, we need bipartisan support. And to get bipartisan support, we're going to have to get people in these communities to be educated as to what this means for them, what it means for their locality and community, and what over uh, overdevelopment and more density can do to those communities. And they have to let their voices be heard, and they have to communicate that to their elected officials. All right, fair enough, absolutely. So um, uh, let's let's talk about options. Um, assuming we have them, um, now, do you think should affordable housing appeals uh, procedure again, uh, by uh, known by its statutory citation, 830G, do you think it ought to be abolished? Should some, something else be uh, put in its place? Should it be revised, reformed? Again, lots of options there. What do you? What your thoughts? The 830G law should definitely be reformed and completely revised. It has not worked for more than 30 years, and the only reason you're seeing Gre Greenwich had. Eight 830G applications for the first 30 years of 830G. Mm -hmm. Over the last year and a half, they've had 14. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you've had an influx of people into communities like Greenwich from New York City after COVID. The real estate market has gotten very hot. The rental market has gotten very hot. So, you know, to think that developers are doing this because they had an altruistic epiphany in their sleep and now want to help you know, people uh, secure more affordable housing options is naive at best, foolish at worst. They are capitalizing on a hot real estate market. If the real estate market wasn't that hot right now, I don't think you would see a bevy of proposals like you've seen. They want to make money and they see big green dollar signs above all these towns and they know that there is a little bit of a political push in Hartford to get this done. So they're capitalizing on that. Do I think 830G, do I think affordable housing um, the push to increase affordable housing should be abandoned? Absolutely not. I think there's a need for it. We've seen that. I just think it needs to be left up to different communities. And Greenwich, for instance, has already done some things to take steps in the right direction. First thing we did is we began an affordable housing trust, which some other communities in Fairfield County have done over the past couple of years. This allows private money to be donated to an affordable housing trust from within the Greenwich community that can help offset some of developers' costs and potentially reduce the size and scope of some of the 830G proposals we get. That's one thing. Another thing is that the Planning and Zoning Committee in Greenwich, Connecticut is, is right now finalizing its own unique Greenwich affordable housing plan that will lay out exactly what they can do, you know, with, with regard to multifamily units, lot sizes, uh, how they can make it work in a way that may get to that, may get to the number of 10% if that's going to be the barometer going forward. It may get there a little slower, but it, it will make progress toward getting there. And I think letting local zoning authorities do that and work within the neighborhoods and with the people and the residents of their community is the way that achieves this the best. Um, I think I, I have some, some hope. I think there's been a momentum shift on this issue. I think the more people hear about it, the more people read about it, the more people hear podcasts like you're conducting now, Jeff, I think they will get more educated and they will want to know more about it. And there's just not a lot of people that I talk to in Greenwich whether they live downtown or in the in the backcountry, who support allowing developers cash in on a flawed law that has not worked for 30 years. Okay. All right. So, all right. We are um, ready to close. So I'm going to uh, give you the final word. What final thoughts do you have? Look, I think that um, people need to educate themselves. You know, people like myself, uh, our representatives, uh, Ryan Fazio, Kimberly Fiorello. Uh, people like Alexis Harrison up in Fairfield who are working hard to get these, uh, these, uh, this information in as many people's hands as possible. People need to do the work. They need to read these articles. They need to call, call their local elected officials. And they need to ask about what this means for them. And I think the more people find out about it, the more there will be, a, uh, there will be some backlash against this. And again, Affordable housing is a very laudable goal. It's something I think every town should pursue. I think there's a need for housing. 
but I don't think it should come from the state in one broad brushstroke. I think it should be left to the unique individual towns in our state and the zoning committees that run them. They know what's best and they know how to work with the community so that everyone gets a chance to benefit from it, whatever comes. Well, with that said, I'm going to say, Dan Quigley, I want to thank you very, very much for being on the uh, Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. Um, this has been a very, very enlightening uh, conversation that we have had with each other. Um, I dare I say, I think we'll probably hear more from you about this um, and, um, and others in the, um, in the future. This is uh, certainly not going to be going away. Um, anytime soon. And I really want to thank you very, very much uh, for sharing your thoughts with us uh, today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. It was a pleasure to talk about this with you. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Mark your calendars Monday, 25th of April, 2022. Why? Well, rock harpist and singer Erin Hill, who has roots here in Greenwich, Connecticut, returns to the cutting room in New York City, bringing her electric harp and unique brand of harp and vocal music, singing and playing the music of Kate Bush with her band. Night Scented Harp, the music of Kate Bush by Aaron Hill, features Aaron singing and playing songs from the albums The Kick Inside, Lionheart, Never Forever, The Dreaming, Hounds of Love, The Sensual World, Ariel, and more. Her band joins her with drums, percussion, harmony vocals, violin, cello, and pedal steel guitar. New York City's Daily News says, quote, Aaron Hill lights up the stage, unquote. Women Who Rock magazine says about Erin Hill, quote, This redhead delivers a much-needed dose of marvelous pop ditties with her simply beautiful and honest voice, witty lyrics, and excellent musicianship, unquote. The Cutting Room is located at 44 East 32nd Street in Manhattan. Learn more at thecuttingroomnyc.com. Doors open at 6.30 p.m., Advanced tickets, $20 each. Tickets at the door, $25. Learn more and purchase tickets at erinhill.com. That's spelled E-R-I-N-H-I-L-L dot com. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the April 1st, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and I am your host. Now, I have to tell you, um, and this may or may not surprise you, but you know, history is very kaleidoscopic. Um, it features a dazzling assortment of overlapping stories and some really interesting storytellers. Now, Greenwich, Connecticut is no exception. Now, one of my favorites is Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. Now, we owe a debt of gratitude to a uh, local gentleman here by the name of Frank Nicholson, who years ago collected and published Judge Hubbard's columns from the Greenwich Press in a book titled Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. Um, it is available, by the way, for borrowing from the Greenwich Library. Uh, you can go and um, and get it there. Um, and uh, of, uh, of Judge Hubbard, um, who happens to be one of my uh, favorite local um, historians and, and writers of the um, early 20th century, this is what uh, Frank Nicholson said. He said, quote, His columns in the press, which this book contains, reveal Judge Hubbard to be far more than a local historian. One feels after reading him that here it was Greenwich's Renaissance man, traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, a prolifer of a profiler, I'm sorry, of, of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, and even a militant protester and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history prior to his time as well as those of his time. A look up the index should whet your appetite and probably make an addict addict of you sufficiently to make you to want to read more. Well, I mean, I can't put it better than that. Um, and so we are very, very grateful to um, to Frank Nicholson for putting this uh, book um, uh, together. So um, I was going through this and I found a particular uh, column that I wanted to start off with you um, on today's uh, show. Um, it dates from uh, April, uh, October 24, 1929. It was the 54th column that uh, Judge Hubbard wrote. And it's titled Removal of Deerfields, Old Richard Mead Homestead to new location, brings back memories, prominent in early social life of the community, much the same as first laid out. Um, you know, there was a time that actually old historic homes uh, like um, like this one uh, were moved. They weren't demolished, for which we are very, very, very grateful. Um, Deerfields used to be on the site of the Greenwich Library, the uh, the main branch, which is over on West Putnam Avenue. It was moved around the corner uh, to um, 8 Grove Lane, where it is still there, and uh, I hope that it will be there for many, many generations to come. It's in marvelous condition, and uh, we are very, very grateful for the owners who have taken exquisite care of this place. Now, without any further ado, I would like to, um, uh, to read this column to you. I think that you will enjoy it. There is something romantic about Deerfields, the old Richard Mead homestead built in 1797. It was recently been moved from its original location on Putnam Avenue to Deerfield Lane, now Grove Lane, and still standing on the south side, a nearby part of the old farm. There are several letters in the basket asking about it. Young people are generally not interested in such things, but these letters come from girls who have a notion that some romance hangs about the old house. The elderly people are pretty well acquainted with what to them is the Colonel Thomas A. Mead homestead, his father Richard, who built it being far beyond their personal recollection. In 1859, the house stood beneath a gigantic buttonball tree, whose limbs reached so high and extended so far that they were visible halfway across the sound. That would be Long Island Sound. Um, it was a real farmhouse then. The Deerfields, quote-unquote, of 200 acres from which the house took its name, extended north and west to the Hemlock Woods. Between these fields, uh, between were fields, enclosed by enormous stone walls, prolific apple orchards, fields of grain, a range for sheep and abundant pasture for a great herd of Alderney cows— Horseneck Brook, dammed up to what is still called Sheep Pen, uh, had real significance, for here were washed the sheep before the shearing. 
It was an evening in June when the writer first saw Deerfields. The robins were going mad with joy, as evidenced by their evening song, and across the broad fields to the north that came the vibrant song of the bobolinks. A white picket fence enclosed the doorway, entered through a gate kept closed by an iron weight. Dooryard fences of white paling were then common throughout New England. Truant cows were not above trespassing and demolishing the flowers that flourished along the entrance walk, hence the weighted gate. The lawn was trimmed with scythe and sickle, for lawnmowers were not in use till 1868. But years before, when picket fences became obsolete, there came a change. That change cannot be better expressed than by the following poem, never before in print, but fresh from the typewriter of Herbert Durrell Smart of Nashua, New Hampshire. There is a monin around the cottage, unkept, a one time long. There seems to be something missing. The picket fence is gone. The gate is always opened, unlatched, and swinging free, lies in a heap lamenting, there's no more gate to be. There was a time, far distant, when the old fence was new, enclosing pleasant memories of bygone days and you. But that was when the cottage, in glistening coat of white, in quaint surroundings, nestled among the flowers bright. Today it is deserted, had been for many a year, and the blooms that lined the pathway are now no longer here. But what is strangely missing, and makes my heart string tense, is the gate that used to open, in the old-time picket fence. Over the gate on that summer evening of the long ago hung a young lady of sixteen who held her hand a bouquet of wild flowers, and as the boy of eight passed by, she called out, quote, Here, little boy, take these flowers, unquote, much embarrassed, the writer grabbed them, and in the years that followed, he thanked Lucinda Mead more than once for that delicate attention to a newcomer, but to the giver, a strange little boy. Then later came the social life of the town in which the same Lucinda was a leader, when the wide hall extending the depth of the house was filled with a dancing throng devoted to the Lancers, Scush and Money Musk, dances now quite obsolete. Prominent was Deerfields among all the homesteads on New Year's Day, when open house meant a hundred callers. A bountiful table, prominent with cold roast turkey, an infant pig and a with a lemon in his mouth, salads and pickled oysters. Nothing could be more appropriate than that the house should become the property of the great-great-grandson of the builder. And it is fortunate, too, that within is much the same as originally laid out. There are brass doorknobs, H&L hinges, and corner cupboards paneled by hand, besides the multi-paned windows of the colonial days, the open fireplaces and the Franklin stoves with their brass trimmings of a later date have been kept intact, cherished by Mrs. Bertha Mead Reynolds, her birthplace and her home for many years. And now it belongs to Ralph E. Brush, built by his great-great-grandfather, Richard Mead, and long the home of his great-uncle, Colonel Thomas A. Mead. How fortunate that the old but rugged house of oaken timbers has escaped the demolishing acts of the wrecker and will exist for another century in the family of its builder. The original door-knocker, dated 1797, hangs upon the same Dutch door leading to the wide hall. Outside will be a broad lawn with a street front of 200 feet with native trees about, and within will be only furniture of the early American type. Fortunate indeed is the owner of such a house, with its memories of Civil War days from whence went a favorite son, Thomas R., never to return, and a much-beloved daughter, Louisa, who became the widow of the gallant Major Mead, our first historian, Frederick A. Hubbard. 
Well, while we are on the subject of Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard um, and switching over to marking the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, we have from time to time been featuring news of crimes and misdemeanors that have been committed in the town of Greenwich. This uh, that I am about to share with you was actually committed in New York City, but it involved our dear Judge Hubbard, um, Greenwich resident. This dates from March 13, 1908, and it was featured in the Greenwich News. Of course, that was the publication that Judge Hubbard wrote for, and I thought that I would um, share this with you. He was the subject uh, or victim, I should say, of uh, pickpocketing. And so the story goes as follows. Frederick A. Hubbard's pocket was picked while he was riding on a trolley car in New York City last Monday. He did not discover his loss until sometime after the theft was committed. He immediately reported the matter to the New York police. The pocketbook, which was taken, contained about $30 in cash checks to the amount of a $150, a credit slip on a New York department store, and a passbook on the New Haven Railroad. Two days later, Mr. Hubbard recovered his pocketbook with all its contents except the $30 in cash. The thief had thrust it onto or into a letterbox. It is said that this is a common scheme of pickpockets to dispose of booty which they do not want. Mr. Hubbard thinks that the theft took place while he was getting off the car and was crowded and jostled by the people in the car. All right, as we start to conclude today's show, I wanted to just conclude with some news of events that are being offered to the public uh, at the Greenwich Historical Society. You can learn more about these by going online to greenwichhistory.org. You can also call the Greenwich Historical Society at 203-869-6899. Uh, the ones that I'm featuring uh, today, of course, will pertain to the month of April. So the first of these that is coming up is Bridgeport's Little Liberia. This is the importance of African-American historic preservation from Misa L. Tisdale. This is going to be on Thursday. That would be next Thursday, April 7th. At 6 p.m., this is going to be a Zoom event. So in other words, it's going to be online. I strongly recommend um, enrolling for this, especially if you are interested um, in African-American um, history. Um, another event that is coming up uh, on the 21st of April, this will be also on Zoom at 6 p.m. This is uh, titled The Diseased Ship, A Tale of New England's Twin Plagues with Dr. Meadow Dibble. Again, this is going to be on Thursday, April 21st. 6 p.m. This is a Zoom event, and um, and you can learn more about that and other uh, events uh, at uh, GreenwichHistory.org. Look under the um, events menu, and you will find them there. Also, Constant Holly McRae Floral Design Series, Artful Arrangements, Tulips, and Larkspur. This is going to be on Friday, April 22nd from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, that is one that uh, also, if you're interested in flower arrangements, I think that uh, that you will enjoy that. Um, and then also, great news uh, for those of you that you might remember the um, Tavern Garden Markets that were uh, held at the Greenwich Historical Society. Well, guess what? The first one for this year, year 2022, is going to be coming up um, on Wednesday, May 4th. That is from 10 a.m. To, to 1 p.m. The Tavern Garden Markets were really popular. Uh, I used to go to, um, to those, but now that we're heading back toward normality, at least I hope that we are, um, this is an event that, um, that I strongly recommend that, um, that you attend. In fact, all of the events. Hey, you know, by the way, why don't you consider joining the Greenwich Historical Society? You can do that online by going to GreenwichHistory.org. Again, you can also call the Historical Society at 203-869-6899. The office, museum, store, and the cafe at the Greenwich Historical Society, Society are open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. The museum galleries are also open again from uh, Wednesday to Sunday, 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, we highly recommend that you make an appointment um, to uh, to do that. That would also include the Bush Holly House tours um, as well. The library and archives also are open again.
can, but please make an appointment. Um, and you can do that by going to GreenwichHistory.org or calling 203-869-6899. Well, with that said, my friends, I want to say thank you all very much for coming and uh, logging on and listening to the April 1st, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, which was founded on July 18, year 1640. It's really been a pleasure having you. Uh, with us uh, today. We will be back um, with another show next Friday, which is um, April 8th. Please remember that um, we cherish our history here in Greenwich, Connecticut. You are very, very much a part of it. And uh, we thank you so much uh, for being a part of the history of this extraordinary community that we call home, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. My friends, I have to go, so I'll talk to you soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.